Just wondering if you've been enjoying the fall weather as much as I have been. Hasn't this been great? I mean, I'll admit today was pretty windy, but I still think we've had an amazing fall for weather. The wind today actually reminds me of uh, the three retired fellows who were having a hard time communicating with each other because they had a, um, they were suffering from major hearing loss. And uh, they too were celebrating the beautiful November weather and were actually contemplating going golfing. And uh, one of them went and looked outside and said, ah, no, no, maybe not today. It's too windy. And the other senior looked at him and said, no, it's not. It's Thursday. <laughs> the third fellow chimed in and said, I'm thirsty too. Let's go have a Coke. <laughs> well, with the way these guys were communicating, I doubt they ever really made it to the golf course or anywhere else. But we're in a series in which we're examining what it is that Christians believe, and in particular what the Bible has to say about who God is. And more recently, we've been looking at who Jesus is. And you know, it's hard to really trust someone that you don't know very well. And so we want to be as clear as we can about who Jesus is, and in terms of his life, in terms of his character, his teachings, and his expectations for those who would follow him. In Psalm chapter 9, verse 10, we read, Those who know your name put their trust in you. Now, in our day, parents name their children for a myriad of different reasons. They avoid certain names because they remind them of people that they don't like or perhaps people that they feel are just annoying or plain weird. On the other hand, parents will select a name because they like the way it sounds or because... It's a really popular name. I'm told that my name, Henry, for example, is a popular name these days because apparently a number of Hollywood stars have named their infant sons Henry, which I celebrate because when I was growing up, my name was only slightly more popular than the boy named Sue that Johnny Cash used to sing about. And so I'm glad to hear that the name Henry has finally received the honor and respect it is due. <laughs> Anyways, in biblical times, most parents, unlike today, they selected a name, not because it sounded good or because it was popular, but they selected it for its meaning. And they really trusted and hoped that their son or daughter would actually set out and seek to live out the meaning of their name. In the Hebrew language, a person's name means the nature, the character, the personality of the person. And if you think about it, when your name is mentioned, the people who know you think about your personality. They think about your character. They think about the way that you look. They might think about your beliefs. And how much they trust in you depends on how well they know you and how good your character is. And that's what the psalmist means here when he's saying, as you grow in your understanding of who God is, as you grow in your understanding of who Jesus is, you will put your trust in him. Now, 750 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah prophesied these words concerning the coming Messiah. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called in other words he will be referred to by a number of names that describe who he is including wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father prince of peace Last time we saw that Jesus is the mighty God. Today we look at Jesus, the wonderful counselor. Before we get into it, would you stand with me as we dedicate our time to the Lord in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for sending Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Through him, we understand more of what you are like. Through him, we've received your wisdom and your truth. 
Through him we have the opportunity to receive life everlasting. Lord, you want to be our wonderful counselor. And so I ask that you would now teach us what that means. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor. So let me ask you, who do you go to when you need direction? Some of you are worried about finances. Others about the state of your employment. Some of you parents are concerned about your children. And some of you children are very concerned about your parents. Still for others, your greatest worry is sitting right next to you. Your marriage partner. Who do you go to when you're running out of answers, when you're running out of hope? Well, I prefer to go to someone who, first of all, understands what I'm going through. And furthermore, someone who can give me not human answers or bookish answers, but someone who can give me godly answers, godly wisdom. Now, God often uses human counselors to provide care and concern and to help bring clarity to our confusion. And so when our life begins to unravel, or for that matter, when we hit the wall, it is important that we seek out the counsel of others. God has gifted individuals to be of help in that regard. But the reality is even the best counselors will have shortcomings. And that is why Jesus longs for us to come to him first. The Bible says that Jesus isn't just a counselor. It refers to him as the wonderful counselor, the counselor of counselors. There is no one like him. And so why is Jesus the most wonderful of counselors? Well, one reason is because he understands and identifies with us. He knows what we're going through. I mean, it is very, very difficult being counseled by someone who can't relate to what you're going through. Well, that's one of the major reasons Jesus came to earth. He came not only to save us from the consequences of our sins, but to identify with us, to feel our struggles and our pain and to understand our weaknesses. When Jesus came to earth, he was not just fully God. He was also fully human. And though he was conceived supernaturally by the Holy Spirit, he was born of a human mother in the normal way just like us. Luke chapter 2 verse 52 tells us that as a child he grew in wisdom and in stature, in favor with God and man. He was a carpenter by trade which required physical strength and multiple skills, including masonry and stonework and, of course, woodwork. Since he was a manual worker, he likely had the physique of a hard worker with broad shoulders, muscular chest, and strong arms and hands. You know, Dr. Gilbert Belazikian, he says, so often Christian films represent Jesus as kind of a skinny, wimpy, slow-moving, long-haired dreamer Disguised as a guru with a beard and a sad face. And yet he says, when you think of Jesus clearing the temple, Jesus was undoubtedly a rather imposing person physically. Because he was taking away their opportunity to take money. And if you really want to tick people off, just try to mess with their money. Had he been a wimp physically the way that he is so often characterized, these merchants probably would have stood up to him and said, yeah, and who's going to stop us? You and whose mother? But they didn't try to stop him. The scripture says they fled. Undoubtedly, Jesus was strong physically. But he was also strong in his character and his personality. He had a mental tenacity, a mental toughness. He knew who he was and he knew what his mission was. And nothing could seduce him or distract him from accomplishing it. He didn't cave into temptation or take the easy road, even though he faced all of the challenges that we face. 
Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are. He had the same needs, the same drives, the same desires, the same pressures, problems, and temptations in life. He was not a superman who changed into a human costume to hide his divinity. He was fully man. The bullets did not bounce off him. He did not invade our world with a protective shield. He experienced real pain. The Bible tells us that Jesus got hungry. It tells us that he was thirsty. John 4, 6 says that his feet ached. He got weary from traveling. He got tired and fatigued. He needed sleep and refreshment. He knew what it meant to be criticized or to be misunderstood. Yes, he was strong physically, but he was also strong in character and personality. Furthermore, he was sensitive. If you think about it, powerful people in our world are often arrogant and unapproachable. Because of their power, they're often tempted to look down with contempt on those that they consider to be um, inferior or weak. They have no time for lesser people. And yet we see no trace of this in Jesus. He was a humble man. He was a servant at heart. He was accessible and approachable by all people, including children. The disciples tried to shoo them away. And Jesus said, do not hinder them from coming to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. He was sensitive to the feelings of others. He identified with them. He went out of his way to minister to their need. Jesus had compassion for those who were hungry and sick. The poor, the disabled. He cared for the widows and the orphans and the prostitutes and the homeless. He wept at the tomb of a dear friend. Because he realized that this world was broken. It was not the way God intended it to be. And friends, this is what makes him such a wonderful counselor. God became man and experienced life as we know it. The good, the bad, and the ugly. So he could identify with us and so that we could identify and relate back to him. Now Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That means that in the same way that Jesus listened to, made time for, and had compassion on the people who came to him for help and direction in his day, this same Jesus, folks, listens to you. This same Jesus has time for you. This same Jesus has compassion for you and for me today when we come to him with our needs. What Jesus did for people in his day, he still wants to do for us in our day. He is not any less real. He wants to do these things in us and he wants to do these things through us. You know, in Luke chapter 2, verse 10, we read, the angel said to the shepherds, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. I want to remind you that this stable that Jesus was born in was a smelly place. It was a messy place. And so put another way, the angel was saying here, and this will be a sign to you, you will meet God not in a palace or in a golden crib. No, you're going to meet him in a humble and a messy place. You know, you may feel like God is just sick to his stomach when he thinks about you and your mess. And therefore wants nothing to do with you. Not so. The smelly stable, the crude manger is a reminder that God is not afraid of a mess. 
He came to earth to help us with our mess. Human counselors might not be able to identify with your mess, but Jesus can and will. You may think that no one is as messed up as you are. You may be looking at the people who are sitting around you right now and thinking that they've got it all together. But let's see if that is really so, shall we? Time for a little honesty, a little public confession. How many of you would admit that over this past year, there's at least one area in your life that got real messy because you blew it? How many of you would be bold enough, humble enough, and honest enough to put up your hand real high and say, yes, I blew it in at least one area of my life this past year? Hands, take a look around. That's what I figured. That's what I figured. We still love those of you who didn't put up your hands. But you see, you've come to the right place because apart from God's grace and apart from what Christ has done for us, we're pretty messed up. Jesus understands your struggles. He also understands your suffering. Yes, Jesus endured the greatest form of suffering by allowing himself to be crucified on a cross, something none of us here will ever experience, thankfully. But if you're experiencing deep loneliness, Jesus did too. If you've ever been misunderstood, if you've ever been betrayed by a friend, if you've ever been wrongly accused, Jesus knows what you're feeling. He understands these hurts. He understands these injustices and more. He is the wonderful counselor because he understands and identifies with us. Furthermore, Jesus is the wonderful counselor because he is the truth. He is the answer. He has the answer to my need, to my mess. When I need help and direction, I appreciate talking to someone who listens and cares and says, I understand what you're going through. That means a lot. But that isn't enough. I also need godly wisdom and direction. You see, a sympathetic counselor who says, gee, it must be tough being you. Because I haven't got a clue what you should do. Such a person isn't a whole lot of help. You know, a popular approach in counseling these days is based on the notion that people have the answer within themselves. And so the role of the counselor is to help them to discover their truth. It is never to share any truth or wisdom with them because your truth may not be their truth, and so you don't want to impose your truth on their truth, and so you just repeat back what they say to you ad nauseum until they discover their own truth, which is usually far from the truth, and in my opinion is one of the reasons why our world is as messed up as it is. You see, Jesus is the counselor of counselors because he is the truth. And because he speaks the truth and nothing but the truth. And has the courage to say it the way it is. Jesus in no uncertain terms claimed to be God. Declaring in John 14 verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In Romans eleven thirty four, it says. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? God has no counselor. God needs no counselor because he is all-knowing. He is the standard of truth and morality. You know, Jesus never called his disciples together and said, Guys, what do you think I should do? No, you read the Gospels, you'll never see Jesus doing that. Jesus, all the way through the Gospels, called his disciples together and said, This is what I'm going to do. Because this is the will of my Father. Jesus is the wonderful counselor because he tells us the truth. He tells us the truth about how we got here. He tells us the truth about why we're here. 
what the purpose and mission of our life is. He tells us the truth about where we're going when we die and how to prepare for that day. He tells us the truth about who we really are and what's really wrong in our lives. He tells us the truth about our pride and our stubbornness. And he teaches us what the key to a full, joy-filled life is. He says that the way to a joy-filled life comes through trusting in Him rather than in ourselves. It comes through loving and serving others rather than taking advantage of others. It comes by forgiving others rather than being bitter at others. It is comes through being holy rather than being profane. It comes through storing up treasures in heaven rather than storing up little empires here on earth. It comes through being generous with others rather than being selfish. Jesus is a wonderful counselor because he tells us the truth. Lord knows we need more truth today. And someone who has the courage to say it the way it is. So let me ask you again. Who do you go to first when you need direction or help in your life? Do you find, as I have, that we tend to go to anyone but Jesus first? And yet Jesus longs for us to come to him first. He wants us to live each and every day in the same way that he lived during his 33 years on earth as the God-man. And that is in total dependence upon his heavenly father. Let me be clear. Jesus was and is totally God. But while he was here on earth, he chose not to exercise his divine prerogative. Rather, without denying his deity, he abided in his heavenly father. And he said and he did what his heavenly father called him to say and to do. His teachings, his miracles... His ability to read minds or to predict the future was actually done by God the Father working through him in his role as the perfect man. You check it out sometime. While on earth, Jesus' consistent attitude was what you read in John 5.30 where he said, by myself I can do nothing. He chose to surrender completely to God the Father while he was on earth. In John 5.36, he talked of the work the Father had given him to finish. In John 12, he said, For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. The entire time that Jesus was on this planet, he lived in total dependence upon his heavenly Father. And Jesus calls on us now to depend on him in the same way that he depended totally upon his heavenly father when he was on earth. In John 5, uh, sorry, 15 verse 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You cut off a branch from the vine and it will wither and die. Folks, we need to understand that God's primary calling in our lives is not to accomplish things for Him. No, His primary calling in our lives is to love Him with all of our heart, soul, and mind, to surrender ourselves to Him and totally depend on Him for direction and truth and answers to our circumstances. It is out of an intimate, surrendered relationship with Jesus where he will lead us and guide us and motivate us and empower us. Even as he was empowered and directed by his heavenly father when he was on planet earth. Now, you know, my observation is, is that many Christians, they don't understand this. And if they do understand, they live like they don't. In our Western culture, we pride ourselves for our independence. 
We do everything we can to avoid bothering others. To avoid asking others for help. To avoid asking people for advice. Young adults pride themselves in living independent from their parents and their families and are often quick to react to any advice or wisdom as attempts to control. It's just the way we think in our culture. Now, the Bible does encourage us to live responsibly. It encourages us to work, to do what we can to support ourselves. But I believe that we have allowed our wealth and our prosperity in our Western culture to destroy the healthy dependence and healthy biblical community that God had in mind for his church. And this attitude has also led to an unhealthy independence from God. Have you ever heard the saying, God helps those who help themselves? I'm surprised by how many Christians actually believe that that statement is found in the Bible. It isn't. And yet some Christians use this unbiblical saying to justify living quite independently from God. They have this attitude, Jesus, if I have a really big problem come up or a major crisis hit me, well, then I'll look you up. Otherwise, I'll do the best I can with what you've given to me, and I won't bother you with my stuff because you obviously have a lot of stuff on your plate. Now, friends, make no mistake. God does not admire, God does not approve any attempt on our part to live independent of him. He longs for us to live as Jesus did, in total humble dependence upon him. He wants us to live each moment with a conscious awareness of his presence. He wants us coming to him about anything and everything. And he is grieved when we don't. In the same way that you would be grieved if your spouse or if your child or if your best friend was going through a major crisis and not once came to you to talk to you about it or to ask for your help. He is grieved when people will consult astrology and horoscopes and channelers and read ad nauseum self-help books. Almost anyone or anything but him and his word. Because he knows he's the truth. And he knows that he's the only one who knows about the future. In Jeremiah 33, verse 3, the Lord says, Call on me. Call on me. And I will answer you, and I will show you great and mighty things that you do not know. Now, God has a purpose and a plan that he's laid out for you and for me. But he doesn't reveal it all at once, which is a good thing. Because we'd miss all that he wants to teach us. We'd miss all that he wants to develop in us if he let us see too far ahead into the future. And so God rolls it out a little bit at a time. And he does that because, you see, he wants us coming to him daily. Even as Jesus daily met with his father. Why would it be any different for us if that's the way Jesus lived when he was on, on the planet? God wants to have a real, personal, exciting relationship with us. And he loves it when we talk to him all day long. He loves it when we include him in our day and bring to him our concerns and our issues and seek his direction for our lives. In Psalm 32, 8, the Lord says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Jesus knows the way that we should go. And so if we want to experience him to the max, and if we want to experience the adventure that he's laid out for us to the max, then we need to stay close to him and depend totally on him. Now, one way that Jesus speaks to us and to our circumstances is through the Bible. 
Which is why it is so important that we read the Bible, we study it faithfully, that we hear it taught consistently in, in, in services like this. And also in other venues, in classes and Bible studies. God has spoken to me the most clearly, the most directly, and the most impactfully through the scriptures. And I point that out because we must never let anything else take precedence over the scriptures when it comes to hearing God. But having said that, another way that he will reveal his direction for us is through prayer. And prayer is really nothing more than having a conversation with God. And a conversation involves speaking and listening. Now, if you were to follow me around for a few days, there would be moments you would conclude that I'm a little strange or peculiar, perhaps more than just a few moments. Because when I'm in my office or when I'm in my car or I'm alone in another context at times, I often talk to Jesus out loud, out loud as if he were sitting right there next to me. Of course, nowadays with new technology like Bluetooth and Jawbone, there are all kinds of people who look like they're talking to themselves. You know, I walk past people, I think, think they're talking to me. They're not talking to me. They're talking to somebody. So I don't feel very alone or peculiar anymore. But that wasn't the case back in the days when I started doing this. I started this practice many years ago because there were times when I was having a conversation with God and I was listening and my mind would begin to wander. And when it did, I felt just awful because here I was meeting with the Lord of the universe and my mind was off somewhere thinking about what I was going to have for lunch or something. And so I began a habit of picturing Jesus sitting in the empty chair in my office or picturing him at a table that I was sitting at or sitting in the car seat next to me. And I began to talk to him as if I was talking to you one-on-one. -on -one. And folks, that little shift in perspective radically changed my relationship with Jesus. Throughout the years, I have felt his friendship and his presence with me. And I've started to get in the habit daily of bringing everything to him. I'd ask him for his help with sermon preparation, for wisdom in decision-making, even something small like finding my wallet that I had somehow misplaced. I also asked him for his direction and help in some of the big stuff. You know, when we expanded what is now our West Campus on Center Street, we made a decision as a church not to go into debt. And so it took us nearly seven years to raise the money and then to construct that building. And even though our new worship center could seat 1,100 people, because we had inadequate parking, the city of Calgary would not allow us to put seats in the balcony of that place. And so we had only 750 seats to work with. And within a year, most of those seats were full in four services. And in some of the services, hundreds of people came and began to actually sit on the floor in the balcony. And that seemed to be okay. The unfortunate part is they also began to park all over the community. In front of people's driveways. And soon a number of our neighbors were not exactly happy with us. Our plan was to build a parking structure one day. But we hadn't anticipated the rapid growth. And so here we were needing more parking immediately. And yet we were years away from having the funds to build such a structure. One Sunday more, uh, evening, actually, one of our neighbors came walking into our church demanding to speak to me just before the service started. And so they tracked me down and they brought me to the front door. And when I finally got there, 
he proceeded to tell me exactly what he thought about our church. And it wasn't about how wonderful we were. He was steaming mad. And I remember going home that evening after the service, going into my home office, closing the door, and having a talk with Jesus. I said, Jesus, I have no answers to this. Our church leaders have no answers for this. We didn't anticipate this, and we don't want to turn people away. Please give us wisdom. Give us a solution. And I left it with him. The next day, I was scheduled to fly to England. And all the way there, I kept talking to the Lord about this. Not out loud, of course. When we arrived at Heathrow Airport, they shuttled us from the plane to the terminal. And when I got onto the shuttle, I sensed the Lord say to me, this is your answer. And I thought, what do you mean, this is my answer? And a few minutes later, I realized that he was talking to me about the shuttle that I was on. And the answer was to have people park somewhere else and to shuttle them to our worship center. And folks, I got to tell you, I knew that was from the Lord. Because it was the furthest thing from my mind. I mean, as far as I know, I think we're about the only church in Canada that's ever done this. And I wasn't thinking it at all. And yet here it was. And so all the way home from Europe, I was thinking about all of the empty parking lots within a few blocks of our campus. And even though we used the hotel parking lot for a while, we eventually purchased a lot that this campus now, the central campus, sits on. And we actually, for a number of years, seven years, shuttled people from this parking area up to our campus on Center Street. And as someone pointed out to me last night, you know, the amazing thing about God's answer is it not only provided the immediate solution to our parking problem, but it also led us to the land that would serve our long-term growth needs. You know, God just loves to give us his counsel when we come to him with our problems, our issues, and our concerns. You know, recently I was expressing concern to my wife, Gwen, about all the stuff that's on her ministry plate. And she said that, you know, she wasn't really sure what to do because no one seemed to be stepping up to do some of those tasks. And so maybe it was more out of my own frustration and seeing, you know, how much was on her plate. I challenged her to begin to pray that God would put it on the heart of someone to take on one of her many responsibilities. And within weeks, lo and behold, out of the blue, someone came forward and said, God has been speaking to me about doing this ministry. I was surprised to hear this, but not really. Because you see, friends, over these many years, I've seen God do this kind of thing time and time again. God loves to be our counselor. He loves to surprise us with insights and solutions and to bless us with creative ideas. He loves to empower us and to stir the hearts of other people to get engaged in his kingdom mandate because we come to him humbly and earnestly and ask him. And folks, when you respond to God's prompting in your heart and in your life, I trust you realize that when you step out and respond to him, you may be answering someone's prayer. He loves it when we come to him. Because he's the wonderful counselor. But you know, having said all of this, 
it's important that I point out to you that, in fact, I confess to you, I still don't go to God as often as I could. I don't include him as much as I could. I still pull the trigger on many decisions without consulting him, without asking him about his thoughts before I go and make a decision. I remember years ago when we were a church of around 300 people, coming within a week or two of actually having to shut down our children's ministry because we couldn't find anyone who was willing to lead and to shepherd our children. I mean, it was crushing me, the thought of this. And I was preaching through the Gospel of Matthew at the time about the Lord of the harvest. And I remember praying and then asking others to join me and praying our hearts out that the Lord of the harvest would raise up people for the harvest. And in the ensuing months, we were just blown away as people got out of the bleachers and said, I'm in. I'm here to help. They began to get involved even though we didn't use any arm pressure techniques or guilt trips. But because God was stirring in their hearts in response to our prayers. But I point that out to you. That years later, I mean, I can remember the day when I would be sitting in my kitchen on a, on, on, a, on a Saturday or a Thursday night or a Friday night on the floor in my kitchen phoning people and saying, would you just uh, serve our children just once this weekend? Just this weekend? Going from that point of desperation to a place where we had workers Enough children's workers, not just for one service, but for two and then three and then four. All because we prayed. But then years later, let's fast forward about 10, 15 years. We began to have the issue of, you know, a lack of volunteers again in in our children's ministry. And rather than first getting on our knees and praying, I remember us sitting around as a staff now for a couple of hours trying to find human solutions to this particular problem. Not that it's wrong to brainstorm or that it's wrong to plan, but you see, too often our default position is to go our own way. To seek a human solution first, rather than going to the Lord first and inviting Him to give us His wisdom and to ask for His power to do what we can't do. The songwriter was right when he wrote, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. But you know, we even miss more than his peace. We also miss the adventure of faith that God wants us to experience by seeing his hand do what we can't do. Perhaps you've been feeling like your life has no meaning. That you have nothing to look forward to in life. You're just going through the motions. So let me ask you, and this isn't meant to be heavy. I'm just challenging you as I'm challenging myself. Have you been playing it pretty safe as a Christian? You know, just faithfully going through the religious motions. Not really getting into anything that might stretch you and your faith too much. Or have you been praying dangerous prayers and asking the Lord each day to use you in some way in the life of someone else? And then through your day, consciously anticipating his call to engage someone in a conversation or just to listen to someone or serve someone or love them in some way. And then when he calls, actually stepping out and doing it. 
When was the last time that you stepped out and attempted to do something for God that wouldn't have happened, that would have fallen flat on its face if God didn't show up? You want your spiritual life to go to another level? Begin praying dangerous prayers. Begin living a little bit more dangerously. Maybe you're struggling as a couple about an issue in your relationship. Or maybe it's a major concern with one of your children. When was the last time that you agreed to pray together daily as a couple for as long as it took? Regarding that situation. Maybe you're struggling over a major decision you need to make. When was the last time that you together, as a couple or as a family, or as a group of friends, actually began to open the scriptures and Hold out the principles that apply to this decision that you're grappling with and asking God for his wisdom to shed wisdom in regard to that situation. Perhaps you're wondering why you have so little money to be generous with. When was the last time you asked God for his direction in your spending decisions? Just because God has given you a lot of money doesn't mean that he means for you to spend it all on yourself. Do you ask him and talk to him about what you do with the money he's given to you? Maybe when you come to a service like this, you often find yourself being critical of what takes place. Wondering even why you came. When was the last time you walked into this place and sincerely asked the Lord to specifically speak to you? Or at least to speak to someone around you? Perhaps you feel your small groups just going through the motions. When was the last time you came together as a group and prayed that God would show up and not just once, but prayed perhaps for weeks that God would show up and reveal to you and to your group members what he would have you do as a faith community. You see, the reality is if we all took a little time for reflection, I think we would be stunned by how little we include Jesus in our day, how little we turn to him first for wisdom in our decision-making, for help in our struggles. And this not only grieves him, folks, but, oh, we are missing so much that he has in mind for us. If your Christian life is boring... I want to challenge you to come to Jesus, the wonderful counselor, every morning with a spirit of openness, honesty, and anticipation to do all that he wants to do in and through your life. Present to him your concerns, whatever is heavy on your heart. Ask for his wisdom and for his solutions and believe that he knows and that he cares that he is at work either to change you or to change your circumstances. And as soon as you open your eyes in the morning, say, thank you, Lord, for another day. And before you set one foot on the bedroom floor, say, Lord, my hands are open to you. Please let me know where you are at work today. And then let me know what it is you want me to say or to do because I'm available. And then get up out of that bed believing that Jesus has heard your prayer and go through your day anticipating those divine moments when he is going to use you in ways that will rock you and the world around you.
I can tell you from my own experience that despite my own times of failure at this, nothing has brought greater joy and fulfillment in my life than my friendship with Jesus. If you've been living independently from Him, if you've just been playing it safe, I pray that today will be the first day of a new adventure with Jesus, our mighty God, and our wonderful Counselor. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? Our Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for the living word, Jesus, and also for the written word. Lord, thank you for what you've taught us about why Jesus came and and what that means for each one of us, Lord. Lord, I thank you for the invitation that you extend to us to walk with you and to talk with you each and every moment of our day to include you in our decisions in times of crisis and even in the small things of life. And Lord, I thank you for the reminder of how this pleases you, Lord. When we just include you in every aspect of our life. And how life-changing and faith-building that can be for each one of us. I want to thank you for each person here, Lord. I pray that you would encourage them, Lord. You would bless them in a special way. And Lord, that as they leave here, oh God, I pray their life and their relationship with you will never be the same. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.